0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. A few weeks back, this correspondent was in the Bay Area listening to KGO, because it was the only thing I could get when I was driving around the coast in Half Moon Bay. Charles Mann, the author of the book 1493, was in the John Buchanan program, and it was a fascinating discussion. As we have sometimes done in the past, we reached out directly to Mr. Mann to see if he would come on our show and talk about this wonderful book, and he agreed to do so. So, happily, in our second segment today, we will have a discussion about how the globalized world we live in today goes right back to the voyages of Christopher Columbus. This is going to be interesting. You're going to want to stick around for our second segment today. We also want to know, having perhaps been unduly influenced by the spectacular and well-done exit of David Letterman from his uh, perch at CBS, that owing in no small part to circumstances beyond our control, Radio Parallax is probably going to bring things to a close, at least on terrestrial radio broadcasting, in the months to come. We expect to have a presence via podcast for probably many years. But sadly, it appears we're going to have to make some changes in, well, just because of the time constraints involved in regular radio broadcast. This does offer us an opportunity to reach out to you many loyal listeners and and perhaps bring a few of you on the program. We'd, we'd like to ask uh, you to send us a line at info at radioparallax.com explaining why it is we should have you on to talk about uh, your experiences via this program or or just Anything in general, really. And uh, Mr. Miller and I will see if we just can't make that happen. How's that? We'll have more to say about this in the weeks to come, but I just wanted to float that idea out there now because, uh, well, I guess A, all good things must pass, and, and B, our entire, almost our entire body of work is going to remain on the Internet for years. We also take pleasure in noting that our 13 years of broadcasts here at KDVS alone have now gone out into space past approximately 32 star systems. How many planets? We don't know, but a few. It is our hope that they are enjoying some of our early work. Let's begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question today is the 28th of May. It was on May 28th in the year 1745 that a Virginia militia in battled and defeated a French reconnaissance party in southwestern Pennsylvania. Ten French soldiers died, and the Virginians lost one. This skirmish was the opening round of the French and Indian War. This was the most important colonial conflict between British and American colonists and the French and American Indians. It did, in fact, spill over into the European conflict and is considered by many to be one of the first world wars. Oh, and by the way, that Virginia militia was led by Lieutenant Colonel George Washington. And we note with some amusement that it was on May 28th in 1890 that Elijah Jefferson Bond, Charles Kennard, and William Malpin, all of Baltimore, filed a patent for the Ouija board. The Ouija board is either an amusing toy or a tool of the devil. Depending upon who you want to believe, we lean toward the former hypothesis. But uh, again, we are amused at the way it has kind of stirred up certain fundamentalists out there. All right, on May 28th 1902, Owen Wister published his novel, The Virginian. It's considered the first serious Western in American publishing. It was also a TV show back in the 60s that had a pretty good theme song. In fact, I think we'll go out with that uh, for this first segment today. And it was on May 28th 1987 that Matthias Rust, a 19-year-old amateur pilot from what was then West Germany, took off from Finland and flew through more than 400 miles of Soviet airspace, evading all Soviet air defenses to land his small plane in the middle of Moscow's Red Square. The incident caused embarrassment in Soviet military circles, but did give Mikhail Gorbachev a pretext to cashier a lot of people in the Soviet military who were opposing him. Thus, it might be argued that Matthias Roost, in his own microscopic way, may have helped bring down the Soviet Union. Our quote of the day, which will have some application both later in today's program when we talk about some of the nonsense going on uh, in political maneuvering over how to address the uh, situation in Iraq, as well as for next week's program when we're going to speak with author Henry Vinson about his book Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. But the quote comes from Marshall McLuhan and is that, quote, only these small secrets need to be protected. The big ones are kept secret by public incredulity, end quote. And boy, do we think McLuhan was on to something with that. Our quote of the day is from Jessica Midford, who said, you may not be able to change the world, but at least you can embarrass the guilty. Our jokes today, and I think I'll do more than one, come from Jeff Foxworthy. He of you-may-be-a-redneck fame. Noted Mr. Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if you've been on TV more than once describing what the tornado sounded like. And uh, you might be a redneck if the family business requires a lookout. Also, you might be a redneck if your mother has ever been arrested for poaching. And finally, you might be a redneck if you walk into a restaurant with a toothpick in your mouth. Our good news item for today's show is that we are being assured now by seemingly everybody in the meteorologic community that we're going to get an El Nino next year. And while that might be bad news for people in a lot of locations on Earth, here in the western U.S., where we're suffering with a long-standing drought, the promised rains come next fall and winter would be a step in the right direction. Of course, if you're going to put much stock in long-range weather forecasts, You're probably in a similar situation to what Samuel Goldwyn described about people who see psychiatrists, which is that they ought to have their head examined. Still in all, a wet winter next year would be good news for California. Our anecdote for today's program concerns Bill O'Reilly. Evidently last week he lost a custody battle with his ex-wife over his two children after a judge heard evidence that he had violently assaulted her. But here's the anecdote part. Apparently, as this divorce uh, has gotten ugly over the last couple years, O'Reilly tried to get his wife, Maureen McPhilmy, excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Yes, you have to ask what kind of husband tries to use excommunication as part of his divorce proceedings. And our stat of the day is $1.4 billion. That's what... Congress allocates annually to Amtrak, which you should note is just a fraction of what China, Japan, and European nations spend on their mass transit systems. In fact, in the wake of the crash in Philadelphia last week, the Republican-controlled House Appropriations Committee voted to slash another $260 million from Amtrak's already meager budget. And of course, it is a rule in life that you generally get what you pay for. And since generally you do get what you pay for, you have to wonder why it is last week that Verizon bought AOL for $4.4 billion. And by the way, this is not the first potentially catastrophic merger that has involved AOL. Back in 2001, Time Warner, the whale, was swallowed by the AOL minnow, described as a $147 billion boondoggle, widely considered to be one of the worst corporate mergers of all time. But I guess something has to be said for the AOL chief executive, Tim Armstrong. He was a former Google advertising executive and took the helm of AOL in 2009 uh, at a time when the pioneer of the net had fallen into, quote, near obsolescence, unquote, according to the LA Times. Evidently, Mr. Armstrong undid the corporate merger with Time Warner and then rebuilt AOL focusing on online content, original videos, and advertising technology. The Wall Street Journal note that Armstrong set out to make AOL a top-notch digital content company buying sites like The Huffington Post, TechCrunch, and Engadget. But he also saw the ground shifting in digital advertising and smelled an opportunity. He embarked on a spree of acquisitions and investments in so-called programmatic technology, which automates ad sales based on data collected on users. New York Times has said that Gamble was the right one at the right time. The targeted ad technology that Armstrong invested in was widely seen as the future of mobile advertising. And if Verizon can marry its wealth of data on millions of customers with AOL's ad products, it can give advertisers the ability to, quote, personalize and target marketing messages far more efficiently and produce handsome profits for itself. Does anyone find this a disturbing prospect? Speaking of disturbing web prospects, how about this one? According to the LA Times, nine high-profile media companies, including the New York Times, BuzzFeed, BBC News, and The Atlantic, have agreed to publish some of their content directly on the social network media Facebook, rather than linking to their own sites. It's noted that with 1.4 billion users, Facebook already drives the preponderance of news site traffic. In many ways, this deal institutionalizes publishers' longstanding dependency on the social network's vast reach. Yeah, Facebook uh, directing the published content of the New York Times and BBC News. Anybody find that disturbing? And how about this piece by Queenie Wong from the San Jose Mercury News, noting that television isn't the only way commercials will get airtime this year. Social media companies such as Facebook and Twitter are making a stronger push to attract lucrative video advertising as more people use computers and smartphones to watch videos online. Yes, I can't think of a better way for technology to uh, assist our lives than by bringing us more commercials. And uh, let's take one more dystopic news item. <laughs> Most these have come from The Week magazine, and this one certainly does. The Week noted that almost a half century after the formation of Pink Floyd... Roger Waters is very pessimistic about the music business. Noted the Times of the UK. Waters said, I feel enormously privileged to have been born in 1943 and not 1983, i.e. to have been around when there was a music business and the takeover by Silicon Valley hadn't happened. You could still make a living writing and recording songs and playing them to people. Noted the Times, nowadays most people listen to digitally streamed music that produces hundreds of dollars for its creators rather than millions. Waters said the industry is run by, quote, a gang of rogues and thieves, unquote, who have, quote, interjected themselves between people who aspire to be creative and their potential audience to steal every effing cent anybody ever made. I'm angry. Waters, at age 71, says he has no desire to make records or to tour with Pink Floyd Noting that a reunion is out of the question, he added that life, after all, gets shorter the closer you get to the end of it. Time becomes more and more precious, and in my view, should be entirely devoted to doing the things you want to do. One can't look backward. Well, one can, and I do actually, and with some fondness, but to try and walk backwards would be absurd. All right, on that happy note, let's see if we can jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh. According to The Week magazine, once again, it was a good week last week for political oppression with the news that Wyoming has made it illegal to collect evidence of water pollution and other violations of environmental laws. This ban was designed to protect the state's cattle farmers who often let herds graze on public lands and defecate near rivers and streams, polluting them with E. coli bacteria and feces. State Senator Larry Hicks said the ban would prevent environmentalists from interfering with important economic activity. Well, thank you Senator Hicks. Next time we're in Wyoming, we'll just we'll just drink the bottled water. All right, on the other hand, it was a bad week for, I guess you'd say social media with the news that uh, Dominique Sharpton, the daughter of controversial civil rights activist the Reverend Al Sharpton, posted pictures on her Instagram of her ascent up an Indonesian mountain despite a pending $5 million lawsuit against New York City for a chronically sprained ankle injured on a city street. I think we may have mentioned this on last week's program, but it's so asinine, we can't resist delving into it again. Yes, apparently Ms. Sharpton posted a picture on the photo-sharing site Instagram of a sun rising over a blanket of clouds with her in the foreground describing the site as unreal. But what legal experts saw as truly unreal, however, is the young Sharpton's brazen boasting After she claimed in court papers that she was in, quote, permanent physical pain, unquote. It should be noted that while she was seen using a walking boot in the weeks after the alleged accident last October, by December of last year, she was showing up in social media images wearing high heels. And predictably, her lawyer, John Elifarakis, said, Ms. Sharpton did sustain multiple ligaments and tendon tears in her ankle. And added that despite her mountain exploits, she, quote, has not returned to her pre-accident form, unquote. Well, there you have it. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for straight answers after a group of likely GOP presidential candidates struggled to name the country's greatest living president and instead defaulted to Ronald Reagan. Said Senator Ted Cruz, I'll leave that for the people to decide. Cruz represents Texas, home to the only two Republican options. And see if we can't go out. With a bit of follow-up, we, we asked the question a few weeks back, <laughs> whether it was that the Sabado Gigante program had ever made it onto Cuba, we sent an inquiry down to that island republic and received the reply, which was that, rather not surprisingly, no, this goofball mix of corny antics superimposed upon uh, half-clad women and uh, cheesy comedy sketches did not find favor with the Castro government. We know you were on the edge of your seat waiting to hear the answer to that. Let's cue up that music the Virginian Mr. McMillan, and remind listeners that they're listening to Radio Parallax. After a short break, we'll come back and talk about how everything changed in the world starting in the year 1493 with the author of a book of the same name, Charles Mann. Stay tuned.